bringing the attention to here and now, Pachubana Dhamma. So all, every condition, all conditions converge in this here and now. So the, the, um, beauty of this practice is, is, uh, its essence is very simple not complicated. There's not, it's not divisive, it's not uh, comparing. So just this ability to pay attention, to be a witness to the conditioned realm as you experience it. So like consciousness, experience of consciousness now is, is a common factor with us all. Consciousness, is it a personal thing? Is it, is it in my brain? Or is my consciousness different from yours? <clears throat> so with awareness, and being paying attention, being conscious and mindful, then this is the reality of oneness. All conditions converge here; they they cease, and so we we find ourselves identified on different levels with the conditioning world, such as uh, you know the gender of the body. We have identities with that and as a group you know uh, male can understand you know the the experience of masculinity female experience of femininity but then beyond that they all converge into this moment and so this is what we're pointing to 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 recognize The, the oneness, the ikakata, rather than, than be always lost in the dualistic realm. As long as there's two, then there are going to be problems, and, you know, who's going to go first, who's, you know, the, the critical mind, um, starts operating, and we prefer our own group. Or we envy the other group, or these these uh, reactions we create in our consciousness. And just idealizing, you know, oneness and freedom and unity and egalitarianism, and that, that's that's again back into the realm of ideas so you know that 
isn't uh, an, a liberation in itself because the ability to think and create ideas is, is if we attach to that then it is divisive because the ideal is one way and then the reality of our life is like this and when we interpret everything from the personal position then you know what's happening to me and my feelings and my thoughts and my desires and my habits, my bad habits, my faults. It's always, you know, and there's always uh, the projection onto you or the world around. There's so many things to find fault with in the, in the conditioned realm. Because the conditioned realm is not ideal. It's never the way it should be. So that's why with, with the, you know, the utopian idealism, this kind of longing for a golden age or a place or Shangri-La or some, some realm where everything's as it should be. This is a desire that we, you know, we, we can attach to and then always feel disgruntled, upset, irate, indignant by the inequalities or the unfairness or the faults or flaws or that of ourselves or the people we live with, the society we're in. So taking this, the conditioned and the unconditioned, sankata, asankata, dhamma. So sankata is the conditions, what is born and dies, the five khandhas, six ayatanas, the four elements, greed, hatred and delusion, all of that, all that we experience through the senses. is the Sankata Dhamma and Asankata is the unconditioned Asankata <clears throat> so these are, these are two words they seem opposed to each other just like Sangsara and Nibbana and that one you know the, when the thinking process when you attach to thought as your refuge, then you're always caught in this, in the doubt that comes. Because you can, you can create an ideal of oneness. But in terms of thinking, you can't experience oneness through thought. So then they, becomes apparent that we have to let go of the thinking process. And, and that means that attachment to the five khandhas because the, this is, these are the what we think about ourselves as a body 
the feelings, perceptions, mental formation, consciousness. So how do you let go of the five khandhas? The only possible way to let go is through awareness. Because if you try to let go of some attaching to some idea that you should let go of the five khandhas, you, you're trying to do something as a person. You know, you, you, you get the idea of letting go and attach to it. So even the, the best advice, uh, if, when we attach to it, 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 uh, it doesn't work. So, teaching letting go oftentimes becomes another form of whippawadana, desire to get rid of the five khanda. Operating with them, we should let go. And then we, we do something that we imagine is letting go, which is in a, in improbability as a resistance or suppression, a denial or the whippawadana problem. So in this moment, letting go, they take the concept of letting go And in, then in this moment, recognize that, that letting go isn't a kind of act of rejection or resistance, but of attitude, of openness, receiving, rather than of getting rid of. So then the condition, unconditioned, does not, you know, it's not an annihilationist rejection of the condition. Uh, said many times, it's not judging conditioned phenomena. It's not saying there's anything wrong or bad or sinful or, you know, we've got to, you know, destroy the five khandhas, the six ayatanas. Or we've got to kind of bind them up, you know, or torture them, you know, into asceticism. Uh, ascetic practices, trying to destroy desire, isn't it? To suppress or get rid of any kind of desire. And the, so the, the Buddha, the, this is the middle way, the Majjima Bhattibhata. It's not, you know, it's not indulging or Rejecting, but in knowing, witnessing. And when you start thinking, you can't, the, the, the logic goes, if you let go of the five khandhas, there won't, you won't, there won't be anything left. And, and then you get this idea that witnessing means you're just kind of in a passive state of just uh, rising, ceasing, and it, it prevents you from doing anything. So when there is injustice or something wrong or something to do, you just watch it come and go. You know, all conditions are impermanent. Uh, so you're in a kind of, of uh, resigned state 
passive and unable to operate. But in the Eightfold Path, remember, there's Sama Vaja, Sama Gamanto, Sama Jiva, this is active side and living in this realm is like this. Conditioned phenomena is energy. And so energy is, is not, uh, you know, not trying to destroy but to let go of these delusions and identity with it. So then, this is, this is like an act of faith or trust in the Dhamma because on a personal level you can't imagine it. You think if you, if you let go of everything then you, you wouldn't be able to, you'd be, what about uh, engaging in reasonable or good causes or humanitarian causes in the world are we just here to just kind of drop out of that and and offer nothing back to the society or what is the reality then of of letting go rather than trying to conceive letting go through your conditioned thought process So also there's panya, wisdom. This is a, a universal, it's a universal wisdom. It's a wisdom that, that operates through these forms, but it's not a personal, it's not like being educated or having an intelligent intellect or whatever, but it, it's, it's natural to this realm that when we let go then wisdom can function through us through these forms so uh, there is a sense of you know letting go can I mean like the, there is an emotional reaction some people get very you know panic stricken when their ego starts falling away because if your if your if your relationship to the world is solely through the through the ego through sakyaditi and the sense of yourself depends on conceiving yourself and these conceptions are are falling away the emotions can panic. You know, I'm going to die. I'm dying. I remember going through this. I want to live. And to suddenly feel more kind of sexual desire than ever. All the forces, the universe kind of rush through you, you know, and they're trying to, to, uh, you know, just like Mara tempting, tempting the Buddha. Because it's, you know, wanting to, to affirm life. <clears throat> you get into these kind of movements where, you know, affirming the sense realm is as the ultimate uh, enjoyment of existence. <clears throat> so that's where I learned to trust this witness rather than the emotional reactions you might be having in your meditation. It's not, you know, it's, it's why it's important to 
to learn how to use these these categories of the five khandhas because it it helps to put emotion into 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 a category rather than it, and giving it some highly personal uh, importance. So the ego dies, and uh, mean, meaning that you're letting go of it. It doesn't mean you don't have any karma left on that level, but the identity, the need to identify and recreate yourself endlessly as a, some kind of personality falls away. And that, in the, as a result, through awareness, is a relief. The relief not to be anybody. It's always a struggle, you know, there's always some kind of effort and, and weariness involved in having to always be, become somebody, be a personality, be, be something for somebody else. Or to feel our identity depends on the, you know, what we look like or our personalities and whether we're, we're socially acceptable or not or we're respected or loved or appreciated as, as individuals, as people, as a person. And so we, you know, we get very upset when we feel disrespected or unacknowledged or or uh, unappreciated or unloved because it's very nice to feel loved and respected and appreciated you know it's it's a pleasant feeling and it and if our if we're dependent on that feeling of, to be secure of having affirmations and confirmations from others then then when we don't get them we get very depressed despairing and bitter So that's that's why this this reflection, this witnessing, isn't a, a cold-hearted a kind of observation of of just putting the conditioned realm and rejecting it. And it's all just a Nietzsche dukkanata, soul suffering, and make those kind of uh, generalizations about the conditioned realm. The conditioned realm is the way it is. Beautiful, ugly, neutral, pleasant, painful, fun, happy, marvelous, fantastic, horrible, atrocious, disgusting, repelling, boring, confused. There's all of these, you know, because the conditions are dependent always on other conditions. It's like when you when you see a a film or a movie or something, you can see how the emotions are you know can work in in uh, on this uh, through when the conditions for sadness arrive on the screen. When the the child is taken away from its mother. 
or the the hero, the the, the magnificent self-sacrificing hero is brutally killed or things like that. And the conditions are there for a certain emotion to arise. Yeah, it's on a piece of plastic or whatever, you know, it's a or a disc now. So you and yet you can still feel these emotions because the conditions for the emotions are there. The pity that arises when the 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 separated lovers reunite in the sunset and walk away. And the conditions for a particular kind of like pity or rapture are there. And this is not this is not personal. This is just the way it operates. So you know, the, of course, the cinema exploits these emotional things because we like them. We like to feel emotion. And we know that if you go into a film somehow, it's you know, it isn't. It's not so personal. It's not you know, you're not the one there. You can kind of project yourself into the roles, but. At the end of the day, you find yourself sitting in the in the seat. But in our own uh, lives, you know, sometimes we it's it's more difficult for us because it's very personal. Then it's not just a, an illusion for an hour that we're involved in, but it's a whole realm of clinging and, and assumptions and attitudes that that are, get triggered off by conditions. So, the, like the emotional world is, this is a feeling realm. So, the emotions are very real for us and strongly identified with. The very emotions have great power. <clears throat> and we're also afraid of them because we subscribe to, you know, we don't want to be a, just a helpless victim of our emotions. We like to have the illusion of being more objective and cool and and not just you know caught up in in emotional habits so we subscribe to this kind of rationale you know of being cool distant observing uh judging making judgments being critics Looking down on emotion, people that are emotional, and uh, and making value judgments, moral judgments for and against. This gives us a, a sense of power and superiority, isn't it, to to be above it all? Not to be that that mess, crying and weeping and wailing, but to be above that, beyond it. Is another ego identity. So the you know our 
the, we get very confused because we 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 are afraid, oftentimes afraid of the emotional emotions we're experiencing, and we even and the, the and the kind of intelligent critic rather despises it. You know, if you're really caught up with the identity of being very rational, reasonable person, and then the emotional world looks pretty messy. And it, you know, it's not neat and precise and clean like the intellectual world, the reasonable world. <clears throat> so notice how, you know, the, the, uh, like what they refer to as the superego, or that, that supreme judge in yourself that, that always makes these kind of judgments, called the inner tyrant, the one that's always telling you how you should feel or be. The guilt, you know, that makes you feel guilty all the time. So, you, you know, the inner tyrant is always saying, you know, you should be, you shouldn't have said that, you should have done that, and you didn't, you shouldn't have done that, and you did. You should be more considerate, you should be more sensitive So the you know we we turn this critical faculty inward as it goes outward it also goes inward so we become very critical of ourselves and it's very rational and we can reason it out very well and and that and then the emotional world is judged from that from the from the tyrant So we say, oh, yeah, childish emotion. We give them names. Immature, selfish. You know, you should love, have universal love, and you, but you're just, you hate so many people. You feel you should be ashamed of yourself for being, uh, you know, a, a frightened person. You know, if you were really strong, you wouldn't be frightened of anything. And so that, that they, these are kind of rational judgments made about emotional habits. So in awareness, notice the awareness is, is, is not judging. It's uh, weakness, uh, messiness, uh, childishness, immaturity. Whatever name you want to, to give, you know, you want to uh, project onto what you're feeling, this tends to make it more than what it is, and and then it becomes like some something wrong with with me as a person. Where notice the power of awareness doesn't do that; it's not judgmental, but it is this discerning the way it is. So grief is like this, or feeling of loneliness, or or childish demands or whatever, you know, whatever you're experiencing emotionally, the awareness is, uh, knows it, discerns it, what, the way it is, the suchness, the da-da-da, the conditions for this emotion 
have arisen, so this is what, this is the result. So it's in terms of that reflection, then the, the attitude is receiving these emotions, letting them be what they are. There's nothing you have to do about them, but just bear with them, accept them. This is like the meta practice then, in terms of directing that unconditioned love inward towards your own highly personal experience. So in my own practice, the I've found when I teach this sound of silence, this is, this is the, what I recognize when there's non-attachment. It stops thinking, my thinking process stops, and there's pure awareness, consciousness. And because it is like a stream, it has a continuous flow to it. You know, it has this, it, one rests in it, since it's not a created sound that depends on conditions supporting it, it's merely remembering and recognizing and resting in this stream. You know, so it's, it's, uh, so that the mindfulness connects, it, it, it has a continuity, it's not just fragmentary. Otherwise, our, our mindfulness tends to be just, you know, fragmented or desultory. So we're always you know, mindful, and we suddenly are well mindful, and then we're not. And then we fall back into the momentum of habit. But once you recognize this, then you can, you can use it as a, as a refuge. Because it, 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 you can rest in it, you know, once you recognize it and appreciate it. So that it, you have this sense of, of a continuity in mindfulness rather than fragments of this mind, being mindful this moment, forgetting it, mindful, and then forgetting it, and just bits and pieces of mindfulness that you might generate. You, you know, you'll find this, this has a, this a sense of a stream of continuity, of connected awareness. So I found that over the years, developing this, then the cultivating this, there's a, you know this huge spaciousness. The mind, you know, the the habits of the mind then can be received in it. Doesn't mean I don't. You know, I'm just living in a state of emptiness all the time. It's not it, but it it gives the support that receives the the conditioned experiences, the emotional habits, the the memories, thoughts, the body itself, pleasure and pain as experience. 
So it's like a mirror that reflects. Things come and go and change according to conditions. So, you know, you still feel pain and emotion when the conditions for emotions are, certain emotions are present, you feel uh, this emotion. But there's a, the relationship to it is one of receiving rather than of attachment or rejection or identity. So even like fear, which is a very primal kind of emotional habit, a kind of, you know, it's animal even, it's just so primal to this realm, the fear is, uh, is then, which is, you know, so, you know, we can, you know, we, we spend so much time trying to, to get away from fear, to find security and happiness. Because in moments where we feel secure and happy, then we, we don't notice. <clears throat> we forget. But then there's always this kind of dread, you know, about the future, because the future is unknown. And so maybe we spend a lot of time trying to, to find out what, you know, go to fortune tellers or futurists or whatever, just find out what, you know, palm, palmists. Whatever, what's going to happen to me in the future? And there's a, the future is always something to worry about personally, and to fear in a way because, you know, it's it anything can happen. And of course, old age, sickness, and death are definitely going to happen. There's there's certainties. Then you feel, oh, I hope when I die, I just. You know, I die at suddenly. I hope I don't end up in one of those nursing homes. You know, with tubes stuck in every orifice and people keeping me alive through technology. All these indignities one might have. I just want to, when I die, I want to die nice, a neat death, you know, and uh, dignified, not be subjected to indignities or having nurses sticking tubes through my orifices <laughs> or sticking needles into my veins and that you know on an ego level <laughs> but you know on the ego I like to have a nice dignified death where you know it's very inspiring and and I suffer no indignity or humiliation. But since the death moment is uncertain, who knows what's going to happen, you know, whether I'm going to die a kind of nice, neat death or a messy one. <clears throat> but the... That's why in, you know, the reflection on old age, sickness and death is, is part of the Buddhist practice. The, because these are about the, the body and the attachment and identity with the, with the bodies we have. So it's, uh, you know, the, uh, 
when we identified with the body, then we can be humiliated when when we can't when the conditions for sustaining dignity as we conceive it are absent, then we feel humiliated. And emotionally we don't like to feel humiliated, embarrassed and and kind of out of control. You know, my ego likes always to be feel, you know, I'm presenting myself in a in a nice way, being keeping my dignity and and uh, presence rather than than uh, falling apart, losing control, making a mess, wetting the bed, doing things like this that that uh, destroy one's sense of of uh, you know being in control and you and being somebody that uh, is not you know presenting himself or herself in a in a in a disgusting or unwanted way but when we contemplate old age sickness and death you know as, as just reflections not not as identities you know more and more it becomes clear the body is you know it's dying it's aging, my body's, you know, it's on its way out, just the way it is. But this body's not, you know, if in the silence of the mind, in the stream of silence, doesn't matter, the body is not an identity anymore. I have to think and fall back into the habits to start identifying with my body again. When I'm in the stream, I'm not identified with it. I'm I'm experiencing it still. It still feels like this. Still present in in whatever way it, it's feeling, or it feels healthy or sick or whatever. It's it's the way it is. So the awareness allows that. You know the sickness the aging process, the health, whatever, you know, to be discerning, but not identifying, not attaching. So this is where I encourage you to, to, you know, explore this, this, when we talk about emptiness, shunyata or anatta, no self or nibbana. You know, the, this is the, the recognition or the realization of that's asankata. This is asankata. It's not an object, you know, so you don't, don't, you can't see it or, but you can know it. Because this knowing is, 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 is a result, the nyanadasana, insight, the way it is, is a knowing that isn't coming from attachment to ideas or theories or doctrines, teachings. That's why there's this emphasis on learning to trust this awareness. 
because personally you may not trust it. It doesn't seem like very much at first. You know, even you so, you know, if you've got this obsession about being mindful, then you then you tend to berate yourself when you're not mindful, and then conceive mindfulness to, uh, in a certain way. And so then it becomes a problem, and and because you're grasping the idea, you're still operating from the Sankhata Dhamma, from the conditioned views about mindfulness and about your ability or lack of ability to be so. So in this awareness, the awareness is just this, a simple attention. Listening. For me, it manifests as listening. Because when I just listen to the sounds of the universe, this is uh, Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, isn't it? Listening, you know, it's this, it has a broad spectrum, doesn't it? It includes. If I'm listening to a particular, you know, to an airplane or uh, some music or somebody speaking, then I'm focused on on a sound and concentrated on on that sound. But if I just open the 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 uh, this sense of listening, not not aim at not not listen to anything in particular, you know, but it, so it receives all the, all the sounds. It is where when the plane is flying over, the sound of the traffic or the voice of somebody, the sound of the wind. So is this sound of silence really a sound? You know, because it underlies everything. It's not like a sound, you know, that we that we hear with the ear, because you can plug your ears up, and still the sound of silence is present. So it's a, it's got like a, it's a, it is a. Kind of what they call an oxymoron, where you <laughs> sound and silence. <laughs> On a logical level, it doesn't make sense, I admit. <laughs> That's a paradox. But anyway, it's a reference, not a not a not a statement, a, a doctrinal statement. It's a it's a pointing at reality, not a not a, def- a definition of reality. So somebody once pointed out to me, sound, silence doesn't have any sound. That's logic, isn't it? It's either there's silence or there's sound. So logic is like that. Yeah, you know, either you have one or the other. It's either good or it's bad. And uh, so forth. So that's the way the logical mind works. When you get into paradox, it's a bit more confusing, isn't it? It's um, because then you're using language not in, in such, you know, there's, there's other possibilities. But paradox doesn't sound logical anymore. You get this dualistic thinking pattern, you know, 
either you're with me or against me. Uh, I mean, there's something very simple and kind of neat about that. You know, it, it makes, it's, your intellect doesn't, uh, you know, has a nice easy paradigm to operate from. So then we become very divisive, you know, like fundamentalists or terrorists or religious fanatics. You, become, you know, they're always, even against their own group, they're very judgmental. You know, if you don't agree, you're, you're a heretic. You don't agree with me, then you're labeled a heretic, which means you're bad. There's nothing worse than a heretic. If you're, you know, if you're committed to that my belief is the right one and you don't, you don't go along with it, then you're obviously a disciple of the devil. The logic's there. <laughs> So, uh, so uh, then what do you do? Disciples, you get you excommunicate them, or you burn them at the stake, you hang them, you do something to destroy them, because that seems the righteous thing to do. So that's the bawadanha vipawadanha delusions again operating. So then the silence. We're not, we're not demanding an ideal silence, are we? In this way. We're not, we're not saying, I want total blank silence as an ideal, you know. No sound, no vibration, nothing whatsoever, just a total annihilation of any energetic experience through the you know, through the senses, is a, is an ideal that one might have of what silence is. But in terms of, of, uh, experience, silence to me is this. This is the stillness or the silence. I'm not talking about silence or stillness, it's just this. The thinking mind stops. And the, and the, and the, and the silence resonates, rings, and receives sound or, or sight, you know, in this, you, you know, it's a background for sensory experience, for thinking, for emotion. So then this is budget tongue. Way teed up all we need to be experienced individually. It's like, this is, again, this is why I encourage you to trust this awareness. I find after, you know, practicing like this for many years, and of course it's it's very natural to me now, so it, it, uh, it's not, you know, it's very simple, very, Easiest thing. You know, so it, it operates, you know, wherever. And it's not based on 
you know, it's not supported by conditions. It's not a refined state that depends on refined conditions supporting it. It's it's the asankata dhamma that receives the sankata dhammas. So, in the getting back to this metaphor of axis mundi, then this being back in this center point, isn't it? You know, your experience is always from where you are. You know, this is the center point. This is a center of experience here and now. This this form here is where I ground it, where I reach that center. And then, the, then, that, then that is the center of the universe in terms of experience, because you're experiencing the universe through this point, you know, through the through the experience of the senses and the mind within the individual body you have. So that's just the way it is. It's nothing. <laughs> Nothing to attach to as a, some kind of personal attainment. It's just the way things are. So then, uh, you know, like, like when you look up at the stars at night and kind of wonder at the uh, immensity and mystery of the universe, you see these lights in outer space. These little stars in, in out in the vast space. You know, they're points of light. And you know, this is a point of light too. This this conscious creature here in the universe. You know, and that but that what connects me to the star, Mike, is the consciousness, isn't it? The star, billions of light years away, is in consciousness. And, you know, I'm experiencing, I can actually see this twinkling star. That's consciousness. If I was unconscious, I wouldn't be able to see it. <laughs> know it's it. Then notice how you divide that experience into me, me looking at that star way out there. Then it then it becomes very separative. And then I'm I'm just this little body here on this planet, and that star is way way out there. Who knows? So mysterious in the vast immensity of infinite space and this little twinkling light out there is very separate from me that's the you, you think I'm thinking again I'm creating that division and that's a conventional way of, of uh, seeing life you know there's a convention I am Ajahn Sumedho and so forth I have a 
bio, uh, autobiography and uh, this kind of uh, the conventional ways of of talking and perceiving. But when you're when you're aware, then you're getting outside the conventional way of perceiving yourself in the universe. So we're not, I'm not, you're not dismissing the convention either, but recognizing its limitation and how deluding. If that's our reality, then it's never going to be satisfying to us. Conventional reality is, it, you know, it's so changeable and basically unsatisfying as a, as a refuge. You know, society, the human body, wealth, whatever, even the best that that the conventional reality has to offer is is basically unsatisfying to us. <clears throat> There's a sense always a sense of lack left, even when you've got everything. The sense of something's missing. Now as long as your reality depends on attachment to conventional to the to the Sankata Dhammas, then, then you, you know, it's, it is, uh, you know, the, uh, the experience of dukkha or suffering. Because you're attaching to suffering as your identity, to that which is unstable, changing, and not really yours anyway. And you're trying to say it is. I want to make it permanent, stable, safe, and mine. So you see, it's a it's a hopeless situation. <laughs> so then, when you're out looking at the star at night, you know you open to it. You don't try to. You know, you don't have to think about it because the, the, the discerning ability is present. You don't have to, to make it into anything more than what it is. If you reflect on it, you know, the consciousness, the, the, uh, through the senses, through the, through eye contact, is like this. But it's in consciousness, it's not separate from you in the in the way that it seems on a conventional level. So what is that about? You know, when you see see yourself always in the conventional I'm just this little human body, you know, I'm nobody you know if I died Today, you know, wouldn't make any difference to the universe. I'm just a, you know, just another one of billions of human beings that are destroying the planet. Seeing my, I could see, put myself into that perspective on a personal level. <clears throat> Because, of course, it, it's true. I mean, my personality, you know, when it's gone, when I'm not coming from attachment to Sankhya Diti, 
you know, it's, you know, it's that 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 person is is dead. When there's emptiness and awareness, that your personality drops away, so it dies. You know, and in that death of personality, you know, it's peace, peacefulness. Because on, on a, the personality as a, an identity is never peaceful. It longs for peace, maybe, and thinks peace is a great idea. And, uh, but it, and then complains when it's not peaceful. But, uh, but remember that, that that that's the conditioning that in itself you can't you can't find a condition that is going to be peaceful. Maybe refined is the best you can do. You can you can attach to refinement of thoughts and aesthetic values and things like this so that you do experience a kind of refined sense of tranquility and bliss from from attaching to refinement. Then it also has its its dark side. The more refined you get, the more upset you are with the world. Your standards go up too high and then you can't cope with the coarseness of life. You feel offended easily easily upset critical of everything because everyone's so crude and the world is so coarse and just you know Philistines people without taste people <laughs> messy people dirty people <clears throat> So one becomes, you know, too refined. This, this, remember, this realm is not, it includes refinement, but this realm is, includes both coarse and refined. So in the reflection on the five khandas, you know, the, the body's coarse. You know, so it's, it's included in it. So all the, 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 the gamut from ultra refinement to Ultra coarseness is included. It's not, there's nothing preferred or idealized with awareness. <clears throat> also, peace is, I've said before now, peace can be very boring at first. So we aren't emotionally aren't conditioned for peace or nibbana. We're not conditioned for that. So uh, so then emotionally we can find it boring. So that's why you know the more the more you recognize that, then there's also strong desires for. You know, for excitement, romance, adventure, passion, relationships, uh, experiences, happiness. And sometimes because, you know, it's, uh, to, to the emotional world, we can feel, you know, it's very threatening. 
So, because you're dying in a way, in the sense of dying. Die before you die, Ajahn Shah used to say. So you can experience death before you die. Just, just notice when you let go and, and the thought process, the, the ego is, is no longer operating. The sense of an emotional, and you begin to, maybe you experience some emotional, uh, strong emotions. And if you're patient with that energy, emotional energy, it'll cease. It's dead, you know, that emotion died. But what's left is, is a real, real sense of peace. When you begin to notice that, 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 you know, there's, there's nothing to fear. You know, so then the, the sense of peace is really, you know, it's a, it's bliss where the, the, um, emotions you know, this can be, you know, happy, sad, or whatever. They have qualities. But the, the, the strong identity uh, with the emotional uh, power, because you feel alive, when you have strong emotions, you feel really alive. Like if you're really angry, you become very alive. Or indignant, righteous indignation. I, I become very alive, powerful. Gives me a lot of power. That's why fanatics can have so much power. People screaming and uh, righteous slogans. And I mean, these are powerful. They they excite and make you feel. You know, your your boring life. You're maybe a nobody. That hasn't done anything and then you get into a, a high state of indignation you it makes you feel really really alive or like chronic depression is a problem a lot in uh, middle class societies isn't it because middle class society is is um, you know you lose uh, you know if you have nothing to fight for you know, as long as you're a revolutionary fighting for justice and righteousness, there's something, you know, important to someone like when you're just making a not a very high salary going back to a boring life. <laughs> you know, you don't feel like, you know, you feel pretty, you know, your life is, your sense of yourself is rather dreary. <clears throat> So being an anarchist, isn't it? That's exciting. I remember I was always attracted to, to left-wing causes. I've never been inclined to right-wing. I could never be a Tory or a Republican. <laughs> I like, I like, like the, uh, much more the, the, the left side more inspiring socialism things like that much more inspiring than capitalism and anarchy is exciting to the mind too and you know fighting jihad this is a really exciting one must be for Muslims 
you know, they've got a lot of righteous indignation to, you know, because it's not unfounded either. <laughs> not over nothing, but but it does, you know, bring, being a suicide bomber must be give you a, an importance you don't usually have in life. You know, to sacrifice your life. There's something terribly powerful and 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 uh, meaningful to sacrifice one's life for a, a good cause, for the country, for the religion. You know, I find those quite inspiring to me, actually. People who sacrifice their lives for the welfare of others or for a righteous cause, that's very dramatic, very inspiring. So, and then sitting in the temple here, refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, first you have to make that inspiring to get started. But then it, you're, you're going inward, you know, you're not trying to reform Buddhism and get on a righteous path to make Buddhism better and, and convert everybody to Buddhism and, and, uh, and go out and preach the message of the Buddha to everybody. Then that, then we get into that, that sense of, of being inspired and righteous, which is, you know, feeds the ego a lot. And it's, and it feels good. It's energizing. If you're on the side of right, you know, that's even better. To have God on, on my side and I'm right, there's something very, you know, I'm somebody important. I'm, I'm alive. <clears throat> so then you find sometimes great revolutionary leaders are not very good parents. Things like that, because the family life is too boring. You know, you go out and you're, Shouting slogans and rally for you go home and the wife starts complaining. In fact, you, you're not bringing home enough money. <laughs> and that maybe, that's not very inspiring, is it? Not money. Doesn't matter. <laughs> We're fighting for a cause. <laughs> Then you, then the wife says, but we need, we need to feed the children. Oh, they'll be fed somehow, you know. <laughs> That's boring, feeding the children. <clears throat> if you're, if you're caught in that powerful, high energy. But notice how when you, you know, when you're, uh, in the stillness, as you get accustomed to the stillness, then these, uh, this kind of, these desires become more apparent. You know, the bhavadanha, vipavadanha, becoming, wanting to become something, wanting to get rid of something. So, then you, and you're also reflecting, so you're seeing, you know, you're not just trying to annihilate these des- desires and, and not feel self-righteous or anything, but to recognize them when they do arise. Because we can, you know, in the, in our life, have plenty of opportunities to feel righteous indignation and so forth. It's in terms of 
of conditions arising where this emotion presents itself to me. It's not that this life, you know, monastic life is, is just uh, this kind of, of, um, peaceful lifestyle where, where those, the conditions for the more, uh, extreme emotions can't possibly arise. They do. You know, you get infatuated, you fall in love, you hate, you resent, you, you get attached, you, you, you're bored, fed up, jealous and envious, worried, anxious, all this stuff comes up in, in, uh, in monastic life. But then the, but then the, um, the, Relationship to it is one of awareness, you know, so it's, it's grist for the mill, developing the path. So if you think becoming a monk or nun is just a kind of, you know, everything just settles down into, into nirvana and, and just peace forever. Remember the, 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 uh, itabajita, the, the karma, the vipaka come of our life ripens, things, conditions come when you suddenly feel infatuated with somebody, obsessed with somebody else, or, or angry or indignant, or feeling murderous hatred for somebody, or jealous, or, or fear, or dread, and these things, you know, the conditions for these emotions have uh, are present, so this is what you're feeling. There's nothing wrong in it, or that, or that you're doing anything you shouldn't. But it's it's just recognition of dhamma, seeing things as they really are. <laughs>